Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Happy Easter! Happy Easter! Happy Bank Holiday Monday! Are you suitably full of chocolate eggs? I will be. What's your favourite? Do you have a sort of Easter egg favourite? I do like a creme egg. Creme, you've called it. That's how they spell it on the wrapper. Have you always called it a creme egg? Yes, but only to be contrary. Oh, I see, right, okay. We do like a hot cross bun in our house. Mm, How much are they? What's that? What's um, that index that the um, that they they use to measure inflation? CPI, the shopping basket yeah. of, of, of goods that people have. Yeah, um, they should put hot cross buns in that and see inflation since they wrote that one a penny to a penny song. Well, they used to have this thing in the Economist called the Big Mac Index, I think. Mm. Or oh, is that to do with comparing it across different countries? How much Big Mac costs in each country? I think. Do you do the Easter egg hunt? No, but given the subject we're talking about today, maybe it could be a sort of urban wildlife slash Easter egg hunt. Yes. Now, I have to say, this is such a timely subject because in recent weeks, Gene has heavily fallen in love with birds and um, he's joined the RSPB. That's good. Which he talks about constantly as if he's in some kind of exclusive club he's he tries to pay for things in the shop with his membership card the other day i came downstairs and he said dad what's what's the address for the rspb and he ended up sending them a letter apologizing to a bird because he skipped a meeting with a bird i don't really understand what it was but uh, if anybody's listening from the royal society for the protection of birds and they received a strange letter apologizing to a bird that's what that was what vivid imagination but I've, i've put bird feeders in our back garden yeah. And the birds aren't coming anywhere near. No, I I know. It's I I I yeah, I gather. It's like, you know, when there's um there's been a terrible battle or something on a piece of land and then wildlife and nature abandons it for decades. Keep away from yeah, it. Or yeah, or Chernobyl. I mean that's that's like what our back garden feels like. Did you like. do a did you do a bad thing to a bird or not from you, but generally I wonder. We need an investigation. Yeah. He'll be writing another letter. Maybe we should do a podcast spin off about <laughs> why is Jeff's garden <laughs> Not maybe we just interview the birds. <laughs> what is it that you're not? Why are you not feeling exactly, it? In Jeff's garden? Exactly. So, should we talk about what we're talking yes. about? So, th- this week we're talking about urban wildlife, and I'm really excited about this. It's prompted by a book written by Florence Wilkinson called Wild City Encounters with Urban Wildlife, which is a, a, a ripping good yarn. And, uh, we're going to be talking to Florence about her book, about Wild City, about the different wildlife that we could encounter in an urban environment. And then we're going to be talking to David Lindo, who is a bird watcher and author also known as the Urban Birder. He, he's actually the vice president of the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. And uh, honestly, it's a, it's it's it feels like a, a conversation for this time of year, doesn't it? You know, spring's here... We're coming out of hibernation. 
We're communing with nature. We're swimming in the ponds. The whole shooting match. We're here with a bit of positivity, something uplifting for the bank holiday. Exactly. We're not going to exactly. hit you with some societal horror or anything this week. Exactly. And how we can fix exactly. it. We're just doing something lovely. Right. But that's what we're talking about. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? A cousin of mine sent me a video that I had never seen. It's from 1988. It's my nan's 80th birthday party. And wow, we weren't a family who could afford things like cine cameras and Super 8 cameras and video cameras. So it's amazing to me that this thing exists and it's like time travel. It's so wonderful to see it, not least because I am the DJ at the party. Do you remember being the DJ? I mean, I've got no actual memory of it. How many minutes of reel is that? Probably about... um, 15 but most of it is not going to win any awards for cinematography it's like the back of people's heads and the floor i only say this cautiously but do you think maybe you should talk to peter jackson and work (laughs) out whether it could be could be a sort of you know sequel to get back it could you could call it my nan's 80th birthday just if you're being sort of imaginative with the title and you know given the aforementioned camera work we could call it instead of get back could call it my uncle les's back (laughs) Most of what it is. The back of Uncle Les's yes, head. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, look, that is a great reason to be uh, to be cheerful. Now, there is a certain, I don't know about coincidences, maybe the word, because my reason to be cheerful is not totally uh, dissimilar. Oh, what have you on earth? So I, I met a woman on the bus the other day, and I asked her whether she wanted a selfie, and she said she didn't. <laughs> but... She said, I have a photo of your father from the 1950s. Aha. I've just sent it to you. Um, uh, And it is quite, it's such an evocative photo. It's it's obviously from 70 years ago. I think it's the early 50s. Oh, I just got it. Oh, and it's it's another family party. And there he is. There's my dad. You can recognise him, can't you? Absolutely. And it's literally 70 years ago taken in Cambridge. And and the very nice lady, Julia, who sent it to me, her parents were friends with my mum and dad. Uh, She's identified most of the people there, but not everybody. So she's trying to track down... I mean, there's a baby in the photo who presumably is still alive, and hopefully it's a really nice photo. It's it's the most obvious thing in the world to say, and, and unsurprising given that is your dad. But when I see pictures, the resemblance really to both you and your brother is so strong. They look like they're having a good time. Are they eating scones or cake? Do you think? I think I can spot a Victoria sponge in there. Yeah, I think I can too. Do you know what would have made that party even better? Make your own sandwich. No, I was going to say me DJing and playing Kylie Minogue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they would have been quite surprised to have heard Kylie Minogue in the 1950s. <laughs> that would be an extraordinary gift of time yeah, travel. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, let's talk now to Florence Wilkinson, author of Wild City Encounters with Urban Wildlife, a book I really enjoyed. Florence, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us maybe first of all, if you would, how this book uh, came about, what what gave you the idea? I think that urban wildlife is something that's often overlooked. When people think about wildlife, they often think that it's something confined to the countryside. And actually, that's not always true. A lot of the countryside, in fact, is actually not the best habitat for wildlife because of what we've done with intensive agriculture. So you get kind of biodiversity deserts, whereas actually in our urban environments, you can get this kind of patchwork of habitats, some of which is quite rich um, in terms of wildlife. So I guess I kind of started at that point. I didn't grow up in the city myself. I was born in London, but my parents moved out to North Essex, which is semi-rural. So I guess I got into wildlife growing up as a result of that. But when I moved to the city, I quickly found my nearest green spaces. Uh, Hampstead Heath is mine, which I think is yours as well, Ed. Yes. And I found them really essential for kind of my own well-being as well and discovered that there's a ton of stuff that you can see. And I think one of the really interesting points is that actually – Because a lot of the wildlife in our urban centres is habituated to human presence, you can actually get up 
closer to it than you can if you live in a more rural location sometimes. So growing up, I'd never seen a red fox up close, whereas, of course, living in London, we encounter them all the time. So there was that kind of element as well. But I think there's also a lot of things that people don't expect to see in cities that you can find. And we should also say that you've got past history with this because you are the co-founder of an app called Warbler, which is basically Shazam for birdsong. Is that right? That's right. You use the app to record a bird that's singing and then it will tell you what species of bird hopefully is in your recording. When I created that app, actually, I'd been doing quite a lot of work with young people in London and I discovered that a lot of them were incredibly tech savvy, but knew so little about the wildlife around them, which is part of what inspired the app in the first place. And I wanted to find a way of using technology to reconnect people with the natural world. And if I may ask on a more personal note, you dedicate the book to your mum, Sarah, who filled my life with love, imagination and animals. So was that a big part of your upbringing? It was. So I grew up with a real menagerie. I grew up in a house where things would break and then we wouldn't be able to fix them or afford to fix them. And everything was falling apart a little bit. But we had this massive garden that was full of animals. We had these giant rabbits that were absolutely vast. And my mum just fenced off part of the garden. And then every now and then they'd kind of tunnel out and pop up in the middle of the lawn. We had ducks. We had a pond full of kind of frogs and newts and toads. We had I had a parrot, we had mice, hamsters, dogs, cats, wow. guinea pigs, rats. Wow. We had um, a pet rat called Bruce who used to sit on my <laughs> mum's shoulder. So my mum was a sculptor and he'd sit on her, her shoulder while she was sculpting, like chattering his teeth, which they do when they're contented. And he was so tame, you could put him down at the end of the garden and he'd run to you and sit on your feet squeaking to be picked up. So... <laughs> How absolutely extraordinary, because you do talk about rats in the book and you're sort of, I think you're kind of remaking the case for the for rats, you know, uh, you think they're getting bad PR. So that's, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I, I'm very fond of rats. I mean, I also appreciate that they can cause huge problems for people. You don't want them in your house, although actually kind of a lot of the time rats in the house are down to us and the poor way in which we construct our buildings and people put extensions on the back of houses, for example, and they don't block up the old pipes properly and then the rats get in. And then people just reach for the poison rather than actually kind of investigating the problem, spending the money on getting a drain survey and stopping them from coming in in, in the first place. So quite often we're our own worst enemies when it comes to things like rats. And are there are there rats when Ed goes swimming in the ponds at Hampstead Heath? How likely is he to feel a rat nuz- nuzzling his you're just nose trying to make, his ankle? You're just trying to put me. You're just trying to spoil my fun, Lloyd. No, I want you to embrace. I, I want you to, to, uh, embrace I want you to be like ratty. Florence's mum. I want Ratty yeah, okay. on your shoulder while you're swimming, okay, using you as a raft, a rat raft. Yeah. You know what? I think the rats wouldn't want to come that close to you, Ed. Um, Nothing personal, but uh, they're more likely to be afraid of you than vice versa. But I would say there's probably quite a good chance. I know people who've seen them swimming in the ponds. Rats are very good swimmers as well. They can swim for a long, long way. I didn't want to know this. Ed's going to get competitive with the rat about who can withstand the lowest temperature now. What about, I mean, I know you you cover the whole country in the the book, Florence, uh, cities across the country, but just to make it about me, for a second what can I find in London other than rats and pigeons I'm a fan of both <laughs> good I'm glad to hear it um, and there's a lot that can be said for pigeons as well I'm uh, I've got a bit of a PR campaign on on behalf of pigeons going on yes as well. I don't understand <laughs> people seem to have this irrational well I don't know if it's irrational or not but I mean their feet don't look very nice I think a lot of pigeons could probably do with a pedicure but beyond that I think they're lovely I love the shimmery bits on them but there there is a hatred that some people have of pigeons oh I have to tell you about pigeon pedicures quickly before before we talk about what else you can see, actually, because it's an interesting point. So a lot of people wonder why pigeons have all these problems with their feet. Actually, it's quite often that they get tangled up in things. And that's probably as a result of them moving into an urban environment because they started off as rock 
rock doves kind of living in cliffs. Then we domesticated them because we used them to deliver messages, of course. And then they ended up escaping and became feral. So went back into the wild, as it were. But living in an urban environment, and, and they're very good at that because I guess like our kind of gritty urban centres and high rises are quite like the cliffs that they were used to. But the problem is that cities are full of thread and bits of hair and that kind of thing, which get tangled up in their feet. But actually, in London and cities across the country, there are groups of people um, who call themselves like string foot groups. And they go out and they feed flocks of pigeons um, to get them to congregate in one place. Then they look out for the pigeons that have got the string wrapped around their, on their feet. They catch them and they carefully unpick it, cut it off and put some germaline on and then let the pigeon go. So there are wow. people giving them pedicures uh, because wow. otherwise they can lose toes or even entire feet, which is quite grim. So <laughs> Wow. Ed, you're always talking about the power of connection and mixing with people. Do you fancy joining a pigeon pedicure group? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so go on, Florence. What, what else then? Unexpected things that we might find in, in London and I guess in other cities then? So a lot of people don't know about the um, peregrine falcons, which we have a lot of in London. They're doing really well. And other cities. So I went to see them in Edinburgh as well, for example. They're killers, Florence, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, they are killers. They're known for their stoop, which is where they do that incredible dive. They are the fastest animal on the planet when doing that dive. In fact, there's a pair that nest in the Houses of Parliament and another pair in the Tate Modern, I think. But it, it's quite an amazing story because peregrine falcons, their numbers had dropped to perilously low levels in kind of the 60s and 70s. And they are also cliff dwellers. So you'll find them in high buildings using those buildings like surrogate cliffs in a super urban environment. Again, they can survive with very little greenery. But they're not just eating the pigeons. So there's been reports of people finding little rows of red beaks because they've started eating the green neck parakeets as well. <laughs> Poor old parakeets. Well, some people hate the parakeets. I mean, I love them. But as you can probably tell, I, I love pretty much everything. So <laughs> These parakeets are interesting. I'd never heard of these until I moved to London. They're these exotic birds that you see everywhere and for a long time i believed the urban myth that they would all down to Jimi hendrix and his girlfriend releasing them but uh, that's not true is it well yeah there are a few myths like that there's another one that they were released from the set of the african queen during filming some people think they came from the zoo but the reality is likely that there were a number of different escapes from pet shops and that sort of thing. Their numbers are going up and up and not just in London now, but I think they're spreading out across the southeast. I see people in St. James's Park and they hold their hands up and the, the parakeets come and uh, eat food out of their hands. Yeah, I love that. Should we be feeding the wildlife? Well, the people feeding them in St. James's Park tend to be feeding them next to the signs that say do not feed the birds, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. Uh, I always find a little bit amusing. Um I feed the birds in my back garden. Mm. I have a bird feeder. A oh, bird really, feeder, yeah. yeah. I really enjoy watching them. I also, as a result, though, feed the rats. And I know this because I put a trail camera on my bird feeder. <laughs> and, yeah, there are some ratty visitors and some mice as well, which I'm, I'm not sure how pleased my neighbours are about. Is that daytime visit or nighttime visit? So the mice have been visiting at, at night, but during the pandemic, I had rats coming in broad daylight, which is very unusual. I think they must have been very hungry, <laughs> which I didn't mind. I mean, I don't see that rats in my garden are too much of an issue as long as they don't come in the house. I am basically not a very observant person. And your book is very eye opening in sort of waking me up to the urban wildlife. But I think the one place I do sort of commune with it is in the when I'm swimming and there is amazing the things you see I think I was just looking it up I think a, a big cormorants they're an amazing one because again I'd never seen cormorants up close growing up outside the city and now I see them all the time because I live near the Regent's Canal walking along the canal in London and you get them in other cities across the UK as well they're an amazing one and what's so interesting about this when you're swimming in the ponds is that the I don't know quite what the what ducks they are but they're obviously used to humans so you get mm. very very you swim very close to them yeah. and they just don't 
bat an eyelid or whatever the duck equivalent of batting an <laughs> eyelid is. Uh, um, they seem absolutely untroubled. It's sort of interesting that mm. you. you and is it is water the, off a duck's back, Ed? It's water off a duck's back, thank you. That was the, <laughs> that was the thing I was the idiom I was groping for. And it's true of foxes. I mean, I do think we, we are going to need to get on to foxes and my particular bin problem, which we're going to need to ask you about at some point. But are urban foxes and the way we live sort of cheek by jowl, is that new or has that always been the case? Their numbers rose steadily throughout the, yeah, the 20th and the 21st centuries. Yeah. I grew up, you know, in North London. I don't remember seeing foxes. At all. If I'm out late in an evening, I'll always see a fox. Likewise. Their numbers have definitely grown and across the UK. I think Bournemouth is where you've got the most. There's an incredible density of The capital of urban foxes is Bournemouth. (laughs) Who who knew? (laughs) So you find them in in much denser numbers in urban environments than, than in rural. And I guess it's partly because they're generalists, right? So they can eat absolutely anything so Mm. they'll eat rats they'll eat mice they'll eat a chicken kebab (laughs) they'll eat leftover pizza ed it's it's time to share your uh share your dilemma okay here's florence you're gonna have to resolve this so these bins these compost bins and basically you pull the handle forward so that you can't open the lid basically either the foxes where i live in london have become so smart that they managed to open it. I was debating this with my wife this morning because it's becoming a sort of daily problem that they just, you, you wake up in the morning and they've basically, the compost bin is open and all the compost is strewn all around the front of the house. <laughs> um, now, either they're incredibly intelligent or we're incredibly stupid and can't, you know, there's a problem with our bit. But I'm beginning to think it isn't. I, I think, you know, we've resolved the kind of marital issues where we were blaming each other for not closing the bin properly. And I think we're now thinking the foxes are just really smart. I think it's entirely plausible. I mean, foxes are pretty smart. They're dogs, remember. And they have, I guess, what scientists refer to as behavioural plasticity. So they're Ah. kind of able to adapt their behaviour and Mm. learn. I mean, I'm actually really thinking of an infrared camera. Yeah, you can borrow my trail camera and we'll set it up. It'd be quite exciting to watch (laughs) the action. But I don't think it's like with robbers, Ed. I don't think you can put a camera up and they're deterred by it. Yeah. You don't think so? You think if I ring the police and say, I've identified these foxes, I know who the culprits culprits are. (laughs) I've got them on CCTV. I want them arrested. What what should Ed do, Florence? Should he leave out an offering for the foxes? Oh, I mean, is it like organised crime that unless it's protectionism, if unless he leaves something yeah. there, they're going to mess mess up his front garden or A chicken kebab? I, th- I, th- I think like part of the message of your book, really, the manifestos is about living alongside these creatures. So what should he do? I wouldn't personally recommend feeding the foxes. I think he'll just end mm. up with more foxes yeah. in my book, because my book's very much about people as well as wildlife. And I kind of go out with different people who are experts or who work with urban wildlife all the time, and they show me things. There's a woman um, I go out with called Karen, who rescues foxes and actually pigeons as well, and pretty much any unfortunate creature that she can scoop off the pavement, as far as I can see. Um, and she does not recommend feeding foxes because, yeah, you will then attract foxes. Your neighbours might not be happy about it. We think stones on top of the bin might be the answer. We're not sure. Um, talk to us about some of the other wildlife, the, the wildlife you've had in other cities. Mm. So bats in the black country, I think. Yeah, they're one of my favourite, actually. So I went with a couple of ecologists who are amazing people, by the way. There's this woman called Morgan, and Morgan goes out five evenings a week. And she works, her her day job is an ecologist, but she goes out five evenings a week monitoring bats in spring and summer. And in the winter, she puts on a wetsuit in the snow, gets out an inflatable kayak and kayaks into caverns. And she sticks endoscopes, so like those kind of sticks with a little camera on the end into the cracks to look for hibernating bats. Uh, So she's dedicated her whole life to this. In fact, we get quite a lot of bats in the little estate that I live in. It's like a little 1980s estate in between Camden and King's Cross in London. Can I ask you about swifts? Because you talk quite a lot about swifts in your book. Yeah. They're quite special swifts, is that right? Swifts are really special. I think they're really amazing because they arrive in May time and they make these kind of joyful shrieking noises when you hear them high up. I, I think for me, they're particularly incredible because 
a large chunk of their life is this kind of ethereal life spent on the wing. So they're constantly on the wing, they sleep on the wing. The young Swifts spend the first kind of year, two years of their lives on the wing, not even landing, which is just incredible to me. So they have this sort of, yeah, ethereal lifestyle. I mean, just to underline that, you said that in the book, they, they three to four years in the air. Yeah. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. How do they eat then? Well, that that's how they feed on the wing. They catch insects in the air. So they're, they're kind of aerial gymnasts. They're really amazing at it. And what about sleeping? Yeah, they sleep. They sleep while they're flying. I think it's pretty mind-blowing. But then the really amazing thing about them is that then they have this, like, super urban lifestyle when they come to nest. Of course, like, part of the problem is that they need the right sort of niche in which to do that. And when people build loft extensions or fill up all the cracks and crevices in their houses, um, it, it takes away those spaces for Swiss and they don't have anywhere to nest. And they come back to the same spot every year. So it's really sad. So that is the thing that they they travel thousands and thousands of miles and always mate in the same place, yeah? Yeah, so if they come back and their, their spot has been filled in, they'll kind of fly around discombobulated. And nobody quite knows how they do this migration to the same spot bird navigation is really complex people don't know how pigeons navigate so well either in fact and loads of tests have been done um on pigeons in particular not on swifts it would be harder pigeons are more tolerant while you're giving them a pedicure you can (laughs) you can test pigeons navigation skills they tried all kinds of mad experiments on pigeons they've put kind of magnets on them to see if it's like they can distract them from the magnetic force. They've driven them in blacked out vans for like huge distances and released them. They put them in like vacuums. They've even put little blurry goggles on them um, and they still find their way home. Florence, whose responsibility is wildlife in urban environments? So obviously if you see something disturbing, you can call the RSPCA, mm-hmm. but it, it feels like, I don't know, that maybe when you you think of responsibility you're thinking of them as pests or vermin are you putting yourself forward jeff well i am i literally will never i won't even if there's a mosquito in our room i won't let sarah kill it i i care deeply about creatures apart from clothes moths i would i would wipe out every single clothes moth that might get you through the sort of first interview the, the sort of the <laughs> fact that you wouldn't kill a mosquito i'm not sure it gets yeah. you the job jeff i'm like you <laughs> i was um i was brought up a vegetarian in my kind of mad menagerie house so I I sympathize with this because um yeah I'm the same I can't kill anything for sure like we've got mice my wife wants to put traps down and instead I've been putting these things that listeners told us about which emit high-pitched sounds which I think work up to an extent but I I don't want to harm an animal apart from Mm -hmm. moths yeah it's a tricky one there are kind of small groups that will rescue the kind of things that a lot of other people won't rescue, I guess, like the pigeons and the mice and the grey squirrels. A lot of the time, a lot of the people that I meet in my book are volunteers who might be experts um, working with wildlife in their day jobs and then giving up so much of their spare time. And they are amazing people, but I would say that they do need a lot more support um, there's quite a lot that you can do in terms of encouraging wildlife, though, on an individual level. So one massive thing is if you've got a garden, then you can make a huge difference. So in London, something like 23% of the land is private gardens. So we could make a huge difference to the green spaces in our cities if if we manage our gardens in more wildlife-friendly ways. So the one thing I'm on a massive war against is astroturf. You put it down and it pretty much kills everything underneath it. Ditch the astroturf, stop paving over everything. Also, if you don't want rats, then don't get decking. The pest controllers call it the rat penthouse. And then really it's about being a lazy gardener and allowing things to grow, not over mowing. We should say that you've got a 15-point manifesto. Go and talk to us about water because you did it yourself with a barrel, yes? Yes, and we need to give amphibians some love. I'm a big fan of amphibians, newts in particular. And there's a, a section in the book about great crested newts. There's the 
biggest population of great crested newts probably in the world can be found in Peterborough. Water is really important. And even if you're just creating a little tub pond like I have, I, I got half a wine barrel and filled it with water. You just need to make sure that there's some kind of way for things to get in and out if you're not going to sink it. Across the UK, we've seen this huge depletion of blue spaces. So anything that we can do to create more ponds is really positive. There are some real success stories. So the um, Birmingham Canal Network, for example, was cleaned up by the Canal and River Trust. And the speed at which these waterways can recover is amazing, to the point where there have been sightings of otters in central Birmingham as a result. I, I just want to say, Florence, thank you, because I, I, I'm at this age where a lot of my friends move out of the city because they say, oh, we want to give our kids the experience of being in nature and seeing wildlife. Yeah. And I think to myself, but I really like being able to get a good coffee whenever I want one. <laughs> and sometimes they don't hear that argument, but now you have given me ammunition. I can, I can say, well, you can see more wildlife up close in the city and the range is incredible. So I feel like you've given me that gift. I'm so glad to hear that because I'm actually about to have a baby in about two weeks time and I have no intention of moving out of the city. I love it here as well. Well, look, that's been great, Florence. The book is Wild City, Encounters with Urban Wildlife. Uh, Florence Wilkinson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Well, we are now thrilled to be joined by the urban birder himself, David Lindo. Hello. Good morning, Jeff and Ed. Hello. <laughs> Great to see you. I'm so, so excited to talk to you. Were, were you christened the Urban Birder? Was it a name that somebody else gave you? Did you come up with it? Well, it's quite an interesting story because around about 16 years ago, I had an email out of the blue from the BBC asking if I wanted to be on Springwatch talking about my local patch in West London, which is called Wormwood Scrubs. And it's not the prison, by the way. And I remember meeting the team, the crew, the night before, and they said to me, David, get out there in the morning, be yourself, tell us all you know, you know, enjoy yourself. And then they said, or the director asked me, um, we'd like to give you a screen test. And I thought, screen test? But outwardly, I said, yeah, yeah, fine. So I remember going home, pacing up and down the kitchen, thinking, I want to be the next David Attenborough. I want to be clambering over rocks in the Galapagos and finding new areas in Papua New Guinea known to science. But then I thought, that's not going to happen. And then I looked outside of my realm and I noticed people like Jamie Oliver, who's now a good friend of mine, but at the time I didn't know him. But I loved the idea that he called himself the Naked Chef. And I thought, that's interesting, to give yourself a moniker, a little brand. No one's ever done that in my field. So I thought, okay, let's think of a, a moniker for myself. And I thought, mm, what about the Urban Bird? That'll do. So the next day I went, did the filming, and I introduced myself as the Urban Birder. They kept it in the cut and I had a deluge of people saying, oh, what a cool name. But initially, to be honest, it was a vehicle to try and get me more work in television. Well, it was a great moment of inspiration. And your story is an interesting one because you're from Park Royal. 
in London. You're the first person ever to say that to me. It's true, but no one's ever said you're from Park Royal. It's it's always London or England. So thank you very much for that. I'm very proud of being a Park Royalist. Want to be specific here, and from what I've read about you and interviews I've read with you, it it was your friends, your family. They were like, "What? What is going on with David?" Because nobody else was interested in birds in this way. In your in your family, your friends at school weren't, and you became obsessed at a really young age. Absolutely, I don't know where it came from. I was born with an innate interest in natural history. No one around me had an interest, and I developed it on my own. And by the age of eight. I was a veritable walking encyclopedia on birds. And did your friends and family, did they think you were, you were eccentric? So my friends thought I was strange. Uh, other kids ribbed me for my interest. I was born in Park Royal, raised in Wembley, areas that were predominantly Irish and black immigrants. And why would this young black kid be interested in that when all the other kids were playing football and all that sort of stuff? But my mum always supported me. She tried to get me books and she paid for my first ever pair of binoculars when I discovered that you needed binoculars at the age of eight. It took me six weeks of badgering to to get her to do it. And she paid the £14.99 cost for a pair of binoculars from Dixon's. Remember Dixon's? I do, yeah, yeah. I paid her back about 15 years ago now, so we're totally square. (laughs) With interest. (laughs) Actually, Actually, I got away with that. But yeah, so it came from there really. I don't know why, but it was it seemed very natural. And plus, it was in reality an escape for me because as a child, I grew up in an area in a part of London, there was lots of racism. In fact, the racism was between the ages of five and 15 on an almost daily basis. And for me, it was my escape. Getting into nature was a great way of just being away from all of that stuff and, and enjoying this free stuff that was around me to fill my spirit basically if i may ask david what age, where, when you say between the ages of five and 15 what years would, would that have been <laughs> that was in the 70s predominantly right and yeah it's horrible but i think back it was horrible at the time it was something you just dealt with it became second nature in fact i often said to people can you not think of something more interesting to call me? You mean what you've said to me doesn't really offend me in any way? I learned to run very quickly, by the way. Now, basically, I'm going to ask lots of sort of ignoramus questions. What's your favourite bird, David? That's a great question, actually, Ed. My favourite bird is a thrush, and it goes by the name of the ring oozel. That's O-U-Z-E-L, ring oozel. It looks superficially like a blackbird, so it's dark, blackish, but the males have a white crescent on their chest and the female is brownish, greyish, with a white crescent, which is a bit more diffused. And that's where the similarity with the blackbird ends because this bird is a summer visitor to Britain. It's only found in the western extremities and northern extremities, so the Cairngorms, Dartmoor and wow. Snowdonia. They're the sort of places that you find them. So it's hard to find, basically. And also, it's quite rare in that there's only 6,000 pairs and decreasing. It's a summer visitor. So I thought as a kid, when will I ever get to see one of those? I just fell in love with it. But I have you know, Ed and Jeff, that my favourite bird came to see me 15 years ago on my local patch in London, guys. Wormwood Scrubs. I remember seeing my first ever ring oozle on my own patch. And every year after that, it fit a bird or several birds visited on their migration. So there's a spiritual link. That is amazing. That was the moment when you thought you could pay your mum back for the <laughs> binoculars. <laughs> Absolutely. Sell us on the joy of birding. The main thing is not to worry about identifying stuff. It's more about the fact that you're out there in, in this world. And the world actually starts from your doorstep. You don't need to be in the middle of nowhere. You can be in the middle of somewhere. In fact, if you are in the middle of an urban area, you can just, it's like meditation. You can get to a zone where you blot out all the human hubbub, people shouting after their dogs, police sirens, cars, all that sort of stuff. And you start hearing another thing. You start getting onto nature's wavelength and you hear birds and you actually see birds and other wildlife. And it makes you feel great. And that's the main thing, I think. It makes you feel really grounded. If you have problems, often after immersing yourself for even 10 minutes or half an hour, you have solutions or at least feel better. So I think 
that's the main reason why I do it. I it's think. meditative. It certainly is. People come back and say, you know what, I've, I tried it and it's actually very, very grounding. It's so inspiring talking to you because uh, I was telling Ed before, my son, who is nearly six, has recently become very interested in birds. We've joined him up to the RSPB and I've been feeling a bit guilty thinking I should probably take him out to the countryside because that's where the action is. That's where he's going to see it in a nature reserve out in the middle of nowhere. But uh, talking to you makes me feel like actually he will get a good variety and quantity of bird life in the city. Maybe he will see that oozle you were telling us about. Well, you need to do two things, Jeff, for your son. The first is to buy The Extraordinary World of Birds, a book. It's like an encyclopedia on birds, and it's for kids between the ages of your kid and 105. The second is, yes, you're right, to step outside, look up, look out your window even, and you'll see stuff. If you think of it this way, in Britain, there's been over 620 different species of birds recorded about 95% of them have been found in urban areas. Wow. London, London's bird list is about 370 species. Anything can turn up anywhere at any time. doesn't matter where you are because within urban areas, there are micro habitats. Even if it's in a park or in your back garden, even if it's just one bush, that's a habitat. Birds and other wildlife can actually use that to feed, to rest and to nest. So if you can have that kind of stuff around you, you're going to be getting birds coming to you. And also, importantly, look up, because birds have wings, and most of them can fly. Where do you stand on the old parakeets, David? Personally, Ed, I'm not a massive fan of them. But on the other hand, publicly, I actually think they're good, because there's a lot of people out there who are walking their dogs and stuff, and they suddenly see this bright green bird squawking in a tree. And for them, it's a conduit into nature. You know, it's like, wow. You see, I was about to say, David, I, I'm a parakeet fan. You see, I think it's for, for the uninitiated, the beginner, the novice like me. I know it's probably a bit showy for you. It's not it's not the purest bird, but it is quite, it's a point of plumage entry, really. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, I've seen so many people watch the flocks of parakeets gather at night. For example, at Wormwood Scrubs, they used to have a, a roost of up to 5,000 birds. So it's quite a spectacle. I think the main problem I have with them is that they are bullies at the bird table and also they drown out, at worm and scrubs anyway, they drown out the dawn chorus with their squawks and that kind of annoys me a little bit. And David, how do we go about combating pigeon hatred? I've gone full circle. I grew up as a kid loving watching pigeons and then I began to ignore them. But the thing is, I now look at them in a new light. They're very graceful birds I think they are victims of our excess and also the fact that they are the favourite prey of peregrines. I like them for that too. The peregrine is pretty threatening to the old pigeon, isn't it? It's amazing. I remember standing on top of Tower 42 in central London, which is 600 feet tall, and watching a peregrine stoop onto a pigeon right before our eyes. It just went, bam, hit it, killed it dead and flew off and had its lunch on top of Tower Bridge. Fantastic. Wow. But these birds can fly at, uh, or when they stoop, can hit up to 200 miles an hour. So when they hit a pigeon, sometimes the pigeon is decapitated immediately. It's a fantastic thing to think about, but I'd hate to be a pigeon. Now, Jeff's got a problem he needs to talk to you about, David. I do, yes. So with, with this um, interest in birds, I've put bird feeders in the back garden. I started by making one with some wire and bits of cheese and raisins and and, and no birds came near it. So then I thought, oh, I'm gonna um I'm gonna go all in here. I went and bought three RSPB bird feeders, one with fat balls, one with peanuts and sunflower seeds, and one with the kind of mixed RSPB bird food snacky stuff. Not a single bird has come near our garden. It's tiny, David, and there are trees. I can see birds out the window in the trees, but they they just won't come down to the feeders. How can I entice them? Firstly, it depends on where you've placed your feeders. I mean, obviously, I don't know what your garden looks like, but the most important thing is to have uh, feeders in a place where there's access, number one, but also when they're feeding, they have a very good panoramic view of 
their surroundings so they can watch out for for enemies, i.e. cats and and, uh, sparrowhawks. Don't place your feeders near a fence, for example. That's what I've done. They're near the fence. They're near the fence. Cats can just walk along the top of the fence. So that's another reason why they're probably avoiding your feeder. Ah, you see, I think Detective Lindo has (laughs) got to the root of this. Is there anything else that I should be mindful of? Put your feeder in a place where, where the birds can get to it and see, have a good vision. But think about moving your feeder periodically as well, because if you leave your feeders in the same spot for eons, then lots of bad stuff permeates into the soil below. And if they feed on crumbs on the ground, they could be infected with diseases, which then spreads around the local population. So move your feeder around a little bit. Clean your feeder if you can, well, maybe once every two weeks at least. Don't forget to put water out for the birds as well. Yeah, I feel like I've opened this great restaurant, but it's off the beaten track. It sounds like <laughs> the, 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 the best tip, Jeff, is to move it from the fence. Yes. Panoramic view so they can watch out for predators. Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a small garden. Nowhere is really that far from the fence, but I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> now, David, for anyone who's inspired by listening to you, and I'm sure there are lots of people inspired, where do they start in terms of being a, a birder? The main starting point is not to worry. And I think there's lots of pressure on people to think, oh, I need to see this amount of species by that date. Forget about all that stuff. You learn at your own pace. And if you want to spend your time looking out your back window, amazing. If you want to be the next day at Attenborough or walk, you know, traveling around the world, that's great too. So the first thing is just to chill out and just to enjoy what's around you and, and try and listen to what you hear as well. And over time, through osmosis you start picking up oh that was a chaffinch i was listening to or that's a starling now i think that kind of discovery is really great much better than the prescriptive discovery of looking through a book and trying to see certain things i think let it happen organically you had your own names for birds for years before you were able to identify them before you got your book yeah sparrows were baby birds starlings mummy birds blackbirds daddy birds i just called them as i saw them and funny enough, the older I get, I'm beginning to revert back to that now because sometimes <laughs> it's the best way of remembering what you're looking at. But it's just a case of enjoying yourself. Well, look, David Lindo, it's been incredibly inspiring to talk to you. I hope one day I'll see a what's-its oozle. Um, <laughs> uh, in the meantime, you've awoken our minds to urban birding. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And guys, if you have time, I'll gladly take you out and show you some birds around your local oh my, area. Oh, love that. That's a date you can't say no to. Brilliant. Definitely. I am inspired. Me too. What a feel-good episode. Total feel-good. I mean, just... And, and it's so it's so sort of obvious in a way, but yet something that can be so obvious, but you can just sort of ignore and just sort of walk around the city without even acknowledging it. And it turns this idea on its head that a price you pay for living in a city is you lose out on nature and wildlife. I, I just think also when I to go, to go on about my swimming, but just, you know, I do find it very calming and restful swimming with the ducks and all that. What about the rats, though? Yeah, I know. I know. You know, some people like to swim with dolphins. Maybe you could put it on your bucket list to swim with rats. But also I'm quite tempted. To, I, want, I want to download this warbler thing. Hmm. Also, maybe one of these cameras. I want. I'm quite keen to film the to work out what the whether the foxes are just incredibly smart with the old compost bin. What have you thought about lying in wait? Maybe smearing a little bit of mud. Steak out. Yeah, mud on your face for camouflage. Maybe get a few branches. I could pretend to be a badger. Basically, is what you're <laughs> saying to me. I could ask them, "Do I look like a badger?" <laughs> And David did offer us a birding tour, didn't he? This birding I I would love to do. It does require an element of patience, I think, which I think I might find slightly testing. Yes, but I think it would be good for you. Mindfulness. Stuff which slows you down, which forces Mm. your brain to slow down, is good for you. Let's hear it for nature. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Right. Well, we're off on the Easter egg hunt. Maybe combined with a bit of birding. A bit of urban wildlife. You want to um, keep your keep your Easter eggs safe from those birds. And the water rats. It took me quite a long time to get into pond swimming and sort of not think about what might lie beneath wondering whether you've sort of spooked me i think you should embrace it i think the message of this i think florence's thing is like you know 
I mean, Florence grew up with a rat, with a pet rat. Now, we, we're curious to hear from our listeners, aren't we? Yes. Cheerfulpodcast.com, uh, your reactions to this episode about urban wildlife, something you spotted. It could be, we can't call it Spring Watch because that's probably taken, but uh, Pod Watch, I don't know. We'd love to hear from anybody who's been inspired yeah. to go and give a pigeon a pedicure. Or, or, or just a sort of some urban wildlife that you saw. Urban wildlife stories welcome, yes? Yeah, and Ed is always in the market for some uh, cute animal pictures or videos. I really am. I'd like to thank our guests, Florence Wilkinson and David Lindo, the urban birder. Thanks to Emma Corsham, who produces all the audio for our podcast, and to Joe Kenyon, who did all the research and found our guests for us. Uh, that's Joe from Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed, Ed Birdseed, composed, <laughs> composed our music. Uh, James Deacon made our eye dents, and our artwork was designed by... Henry No Bird Cull. Great. I thought you were going to go with Gull. Oh, Henry Gull. But No Bird Cull is very good. I, in, in my reading up on this subject, I... Um, I came across a school of thought which says there's no such thing as a seagull. There are gulls that live by the sea, but a seagull isn't a type of bird. There are many different gulls. There you go. Less interested in that than I thought you would be. <laughs> I sort of feel like we're at the we're at the we're at the we're at the conclusion, you just want to go. The, we're at the conclusion <laughs> of the episode. Uh, He's been swimming with rats. He's been trying to feed the birds unsuccessfully. And these have been <laughs> reasons to be cheerful. 